This is the word of the Lord. And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him uh, to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. They called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for this great story of the compassion and power of our Lord. And Lord, we long to experience this, the same grace and power in our own lives, and in our community. And so we pray that you would be our teacher now, open our minds to understand your word, and lead us to our Savior, that we might trust in him and follow him. It's in his name we ask. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, our topic today is how Jesus changes a life. How Jesus Changes a Life. And uh, as you just heard, we're studying a story this morning about a blind man who was healed by Jesus. And one thing you'll note about that passage I just read is the name of the blind man. You see it in verse 46, what we just read there. And, there. and they came to Jericho, and Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And it's significant in this story that we uh, learn both this man's name, Bartimaeus, his father's name, which is Timaeus. And, uh, and in the Gospels, uh, the, you know, the names of Jesus, uh, the names of people that Jesus encounters and heals are not always given to us. And in fact, in the Gospel of Mark, this is the only time we learn the name of someone that Jesus healed. And so why is Mark including his name here when he's healed? Well, you know, it's very common for, for modern people to think that the way that we got the Bible was that the Bible was kind of like a legend that was passed down through, you know, kind of like a game of telephone, you know, where there's a story that happens and one person tells the story of the next person and they, you know, embellish it a little bit and then they tell it to the next person and then it's embellished a little more. And that goes on just for decades maybe or maybe centuries and you think, and then finally, after this story has become so fantastic, a blind man was healed, they finally write it down. And what's finally written down is basically just a legend. You know, it's not really a historical fact. Well, um, the presence of the names in a story like that is there to tell us that that's exactly what did not happen. The gospel records are the eyewitness accounts of the first group of people who saw, met Jesus, knew Jesus, saw what he did, 
and witness these events. And the Gospel of Mark has traditionally been viewed as uh, the Apostle Peter's basically testimony. Uh, Mark traveled around with Peter, and he heard Peter over and over repeating the Gospel, the things that he saw. Peter was a very close friend of Jesus, saw many of the things that happened. And so the reason Bartimaeus is mentioned here is because Mark is saying to his readers, listen, these things happened very recently. And if you want to meet the guy who is healed, he's still alive. You can go find him. You can go talk to him. You can hear it from his mouth. So I'm going to tell you his name. He's in a church. He's, you know, a church that's connected to you. And you can ask him what happened. And it's actually very likely that Bartimaeus, who was a blind, poor man, he was brushed aside by the disciples in this story, had his life changed in this encounter, and not only was he healed, but he later became a leader in the church. He was a well-known person, and people were like, oh, Bartimaeus, yeah, that happened to him. His life was transformed, and, he, and then he followed Jesus, and, and he had this fruitful life of ministry where he served God in the church. And so this story is an excellent test case of the dramatic life change that Jesus Christ can do in a person's life. And Jesus continues uh, to radically transform people's lives. In our day, our church is filled with people whose lives have been radically transformed by, uh, by the gospel and the, and, and the grace of Christ. And so this morning, I'd like to answer for us four questions about how Jesus changes a person's life. Four questions, and this is what they are. What is the setting? What are the conditions? So the setting's kind of external. The conditions are kind of internal. What is the miracle, and what are the results? So four questions. What, are the, what is the setting? What are the conditions? What is the miracle, and what are the results? And you may uh, be here this morning and wondering, what would it mean for Jesus to transform my life? And so this is a, a perfect uh, text for you uh, today. So four questions for us from Mark chapter 10. The first is this. What is the setting? In what kind of setting do we need to be in order to experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ? And there are two things I want to point out from this passage. Okay, The first thing is you need to be around the disciples of Jesus. If you're going to experience Jesus' power in your life, you need to be around his disciples. And you see in verse 46, again, it says, And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd. So you notice Jesus is always among his disciples. That's true today, too. Not, he is here present with us by his Spirit. And so if you want to encounter him, you have to find yourself among his people. And it's you know simple fact that the only way a person can become a Christian is through Jesus' disciples. And uh, actually, my wife and I were just watching this week uh, a new documentary that's on Netflix. It's called hell camp teen nightmare and it's about uh these behavioral modification programs that were made in the 90s where kids would get kidnapped out of their homes and sent to these these programs and there's one in this documentary about western samoa which is a very similar program to what i was sent to when i was 16 i got kidnapped out of my home and i was sent to a program for for 16 months so if you want a little taste of what my experience was you can go watch hell camp uh teen nightmare uh but this camp that I went to is the place where Jesus changed my life. And the only way, the reason that happened was because uh, three months before I was sent to teen hell camp, I was in a punk band before that, and the singer of the punk band disappeared one day, and he had been sent to this camp. 
And I showed up, and he was there, and, uh, and he had grown up in kind of a charismatic church, and he had come back to the Lord. And he was like, I became a Christian, and you should find a Bible, and you should read it. And it's only, I had never been to church. I didn't know, even know if I'd met a Christian before that. And it is only through the disciples of Jesus. And actually, in this camp, there's probably 300 kids there. There was just a handful, maybe five Christians that I came to know, and they're the ones who taught me about how do you understand the Bible and what does it mean to know Christ and to follow him? And so the first thing about the setting for a life change is the kind of people that you have to put yourself around is specifically the disciples of Jesus. You have to put yourself in a place like this where you are right now. Okay, but the second answer to what's the setting is that you also need to hear the name of Jesus. You need to be around his disciples, but you also need to hear the name of Jesus. And you see, um, uh, you see that not only were there disciples in this man's town, but it says in verse 47, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so if people are around Christians, but they actually never hear the name of Jesus, they can't experience his life-changing power. And, you know, I've been thinking about this recently, how important it is for us as Christians to just talk about who we really are. You know, we live in a culture that really values authenticity and, you know, being your true self. And so that's who we are. I mean, a huge part of our life, <laughs> the center of our life is church life, following Christ, believing in the Bible. And so if that's true about who we are, the people we work with, the people that are in our neighborhoods, the people in our families, our, our neighbors, people that we play sports or do hobbies with, they should be hearing the name of Jesus from us. And we can't keep that a secret. And if someone says, why are you talking about Jesus all the time? You just say, well, that's who I am. If you want to know me, you're going to have to know him. And, uh, and I think people understand that. I think that's probably true not just about the name of Jesus, but probably true about the things that we really believe about what the Bible teaches. We probably need to be more comfortable just saying, this is how I think as a Christian. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be constantly barging into people's lives and trying to force them to become Christians. You know, the Bible tells us to treat people with gentleness and respect. But I think people need to hear it. We cannot keep secret the things that God has taught us and the transformation that he has done in his life. And I think many people will be interested to hear that the name of Jesus is attractive to many people. And I know it was for me. So we do not have the freedom to keep the truths given to us in Christ a secret. So what is the setting for life change? First, you need to be around the disciples of Jesus, but also they need to be speaking his name so that you can hear his name and come to him. Okay? And so you might say that's kind of the external environment for a person's life changes, the people and what they're talking about. But what about the internal? What, what are the conditions, what are the internal conditions that need to be happening in a person's life to prepare them to be ready for Jesus' work in their life? And again, I want to point out two answers to that question. Okay? What are the internal conditions in which people experience life change in Jesus Christ? Okay, the first condition is, you need to feel your need for mercy. In order to experience the power of Jesus Christ in your life, you need to feel your need for mercy. And verse 47 again, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
And actually, that little prayer, you know, Jesus, have mercy on me, it's a, it's a very famous prayer that Christians in all branches of Christianity really historically have prayed, a very famous prayer that says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's a great little prayer to know, by the way, when you're in a time of despair and you're like, I know I should be praying, but I just don't even have words to say. I don't even know what to say. It's great to have just this phrase is what the Lord, this is what he all expects from us. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what is it about that prayer? Well, basically the prayer is saying, I can't fix my life. I can't be my own master. I've tried to be my own master. It doesn't work. You know, and we live in a culture where there's all kinds of self-help books constantly coming out. And self-help books have some helpful stuff. I'm not against self-help books. But at the center of Christian change is I don't have the resources within myself to change myself. So I have to cry out to God for mercy. And you contrast this story, Bartimaeus, with an earlier story in Mark 10. We looked at this last year. Mark 10, the story of the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes uh, to Jesus, a young man. He says, Jesus, I have kept all of your commandments from my youth. And Jesus says, wow, that's great. You've kept all my commandments. We'll sell all you have and, and come follow me. I mean, a tremendous opportunity. You imagine to, the opportunity to sell all you have and go walk with Jesus and listen to him and talk. I mean, and it says, you know, that famous line where he, he goes away sorrowful because he had many possessions. He loved his possessions more than the opportunity to, to uh, follow Jesus. And so he wasn't coming to Jesus for mercy. Why was he coming to Jesus? He's like, well, you know, I'm good at everything I do. And I want to add to the list of things that I'm good at. Uh, I'm a disciple of the Messiah, and that's another thing that I'm good at. He was not looking for life change. But Bartimaeus, in this story, here, he owns nothing. He has nothing to offer Jesus. He's empty-handed, nothing he can sell and give to Jesus. And so there's no pride, there's no arrogance, there's no self-righteousness. And because of that, there's also no entitlement. He knows Jesus does not owe him anything doesn't deserve anything. All he can do is cry out for mercy. And when Jesus heals him, what does he do? He follows Jesus. He immediately follows him and, and becomes a disciple. And so these two stories illustrate what Jesus said just uh, uh, earlier in, in Mark chapter 10. He says, many who are first will be last and the last first. So you see the rich young rulers first. He's good at everything he does. But he misses out on the most important thing. And, but the last, Bartimaeus, who has nothing, who cries out for mercy, becomes a follower and disciple, and then eventually a leader in the church. I mean, a tremendous turnaround. Okay? And the difference is who needs mercy. If you don't need mercy, you won't come to Jesus. And we just sang that great hymn just right before the sermon, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. And it has that, that line, the, the third stanza, let not conscience make you linger. Which means if your conscience is burdened with guilt, do not let your guilty feelings stop you from coming to Christ. He wants you to come to him, to cry out to him. Nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't dream that you're going to get yourself into a position where now you're finally acceptable to Jesus. Don't even dream that that's possible. It's not possible. It says all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him.
beautiful promise of the gospel. So the first condition of life change in Christ is to feel your need for mercy, but I think that relates to a second condition that I think is especially important in our culture. And the second condition is that you need to look past the shortcomings of Christians. In order to experience life change, you're going to have to overlook shortcomings that you see in, in Christians, in Jesus' followers and disciples. And this is something I love about Bartimaeus because he's treated pretty poorly by Jesus' followers. The crowd that's following Jesus, you see there in verse 48, it says, And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus is walking from Galilee, which is 80 miles north of Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. And he has this huge crowd that's following him to the the Passover uh, feast. And they're rebuking this man, like, stop yelling at him for mercy. And you're like, wow, these people clearly don't get what this is all about. And, uh, but what does Bartima- Bartimaeus do? Does he say, oh, Jesus' followers are a bunch of hypocrites. You know, maybe I don't want to cry out to Jesus anymore. I don't want to be his follower. Look at his disciples. They're, you know, rebuking me and being rude to me. And you know what? I'm, I'm not going to have any of that. Uh, no. He not only persists to follow Jesus, but at the end of the passage, he joins the crowd. And he knows they're a bunch of sinners like me, and I need to become one of them. And, you know, he's not overly critical of them. And you see, when you have no entitlement, when you come with empty hands, and there's no self-righteousness in you, the shortcomings of Christians do not become a hindrance to following Christ. And this is, of course, important in our generation. I've, I've talked to many people who say things like, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like his followers. And, you know, there's profound self-righteousness in that statement. To not think that I'm one of those people that's just as flawed as the others who are coming to Christ. And I'll say, by the way, as someone who grew up outside of the church and came into the church, that has not been my experience. I do experience that Christians are all flawed and they're sinners and They've not been perfected, absolutely. But I've, in the many churches I've been a part of since I've been a Christian, there's just many people who sincerely want Christ's grace and transformation in their lives. That's what's happening in the church, and, and, and it's very compelling. And, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this in uh, Mere Christianity, and he has a chapter called Morality and Psychoanalysis, which is basically, we would say, it's a chapter on Christianity and counseling. It's on therapy. You know, how should Christians think about therapy? I mean, it's amazing. He wrote that almost 100 years ago, and it's still a very relevant chapter. It's a great chapter if you want to go read it this afternoon. But one of the things he says that we always have to remember when we're looking at Jesus' followers is that all of Jesus' followers came with different raw material. You know, that Jesus started with when he worked with them. You have some, you know, because you could have one person who basically, you know, grew up in a home. They were abused. They were neglected. Maybe they even just have genes that, you know, their family is not very agreeable. You know, they're kind of, uh, you know. And you might say, this person has come to Christ crying out to mercy. And Jesus has done a tremendous mercy in their life. But, you know, still people don't really like them. And then you could have another person who grew up in a, you know, a successful family and they learned how to be very charming and get along with people and you like them and they're funny or whatever. They seem very loving and agreeable and amiable, and, uh, but they don't serve God. They basically use their inheritance that was given to them just for themselves. And so you compare these two. The first person you might like less than the second person, but actually the first person 
Christ has done way more work in. They're way more of a miracle, and they're way more pleasing to God. Because the real question is not, does a person have no sin in their life? The, the real question is, what was the raw material, and how much work has Jesus done in their life? Or how much worse would they be if Christ hadn't been in their life? I mean, maybe they'd be way worse. And so it has to be a habit of ours that when we look at the crowds that are following Jesus, like this crowd right here in front with us, there's going to be all kinds of flaws and shortcomings that we have to be prepared to overlook. Because Jesus is gathering broken people to himself to be healed. Okay? So the setting is you need to be around the disciples of Jesus and hear his name. They need to be talking about Jesus. And then the internal conditions are you need to feel your need for mercy and be prepared to overlook the shortcomings of his followers, not let their shortcomings keep you from coming to him. Okay? But the next question is then, well, what is the miracle? What is the miracle? And one of the, the most important Christian beliefs is that life change is a miracle. It is a work of God's gracious power given according to his particular will. And one, of the, one thing that's so striking about this passage and others like it is the attention that Jesus gives to an individual person. And, you know, there's so many revolutionary movements that happen in the world where people talk about, we're going to care for the masses, we're going to care for the poor, we're going to care for the oppressed. And it's basically, basically an abstraction. And in the process of caring for the, the poor and the oppressed, we're, you know, we might hurt a bunch of individuals along the way, but we're doing it for the cause. You know, the cause is ultimately what matters. And, but here, Jesus has a growing crowd forming around him, and he's leading them to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's going to reveal to the people in Jerusalem that he is the Messiah, he's the Christ. And there are three surprising things that we, we see from Jesus that he does. Okay, the first is, the first miracle is that Jesus stops for one person. Jesus stops for one person. And you see that there, verse 49, and Jesus stopped. So he stops this whole crowd. He stops all the, the, the whole movement, the momentum that's moving towards Jerusalem. He stops all of it. Why? Because Jesus came to save individual people. He didn't come to save humanity in some, like, vague abstraction. And that's why Jesus never tells us you need to love humanity. You know, he knows that loving humanity is a lot easier than loving who? Your neighbor, who is an actual concrete person with a name, who lives next door or lives in your house or is at church here or is in the, you know, works next to you, a real person, and he knows that loving the real person is harder than loving humanity. You know, humanity, you know, what sins do they do that annoy you? You know, your neighbor does things that annoy you, and that's what he wants you to love concrete individual people because Jesus loves concrete individual uh, people. And I've, I've shared with you, you know, that was the most surprising thing to me when I was in, you know, hell camp, teen nightmare or whatever. Uh, I cried out to Jesus, and this punk kid who doesn't even know how to pray is praying, and his attention was on me as an individual. It was profound to me that the God who's the creator of all things would care about what's happening in my life. It's a tremendous truth that we see about our Lord. And so I consider that a miracle. So the first miracle is that Jesus stops for one person. The second miracle is that Jesus effectually calls individuals to himself. 
Jesus effectually calls individuals to himself. I'll explain what I mean by effectual calling, but first you see the language of a call in this passage. Verse 49, again, it says, And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. That's an important thing to notice, that a person's life does not change until they have been called by Jesus, summoned by him personally. And being summoned by Jesus is not something that you can control. It's not something that you can decide to have happen. It's something that he decides happens. And so Bartimaeus was crying out to Jesus, but Jesus must choose to call Bartimaeus to himself, which means for your life to change, it's not ultimately in your control. It is a work of grace. Now, you might not think that someone being summoned is a miracle, you know, Jesus can just say, come to me, and that's, he's just talking. It's not really, that's not miraculous. But that's why I use the language of an effectual calling. Is What I mean by that is when Jesus calls someone, his calling has a certain power to it. It's irresistible. It's not simply words, but it's a call that reaches inside of us and compels us to come to him. And, uh, you know, those of you who are members of our church, we're a Reformed church, and we, we believe in the Westminster Standards, which is kind of a summary of the, the doctrine of the Reformation. Where, uh, and uh, one of the catechisms, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, asks the question, what is effectual calling? And I'm going to read to you the answer from the catechism. This is what it says. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, so Bartimaeus knew his misery, his need for Christ, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Bartimaeus knew Jesus was the son of David, the true king, so his mind had been enlightened, and renewing our wills. You see Bartimaeus like throws off his cloak and runs to Jesus. He has this energy and will to come to Jesus. Um, that's all the work of the Spirit. And through that, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. That's a pretty long answer. Maybe Jesus' description of effectual calling is simpler from John 6.36. This is what Jesus says. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You hear that drawing of the Father. Who must, we must be drawn to Jesus. And, and uh, the drawing... Um, people to himself is by the word and the spirit. And some of you might be here today and you say, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian. Or maybe, maybe you've been far from the Lord and you sense that call happening, reaching inside of you, compelling you to come to Christ to receive his grace. That's the miracle that's happening here. But there's a third miracle. So what's the miracle? So first, Jesus stops for one person. Second is calling is effectual. It's a powerful calling that, you know, compels us to come to him. But the third miracle is that Jesus heals us by his grace. It's the actual miracle of healing. You see in verse 51, it says, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well, and immediately he recovered his sight. And so it's one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith that the way our life is changed is not by our own effort, but by God's gracious gift and power that we receive by faith. And so that's why Jesus says, your faith has made you well. It's not because faith is powerful in and of itself. Jesus is clearly the powerful one in this story. 
It's faith is a posture of trust and say, Jesus, okay, I trust you to work and to do what you're going to do in my life. And when we trust him, his power uh, works a miracle in us. And, you know, this is a miraculous healing of a physical healing of blindness, but Blindness is symbolic in the New Testament for our spiritual blindness. And, you know, many people, when they come to faith in Christ and he changes their life, that's what it feels like. They say things like, I was blind before. There were all these things I couldn't see about myself. I couldn't see my own sin. Now I see how sinful I am and how rebellious I am and ungrateful I am to God. There are so many things I couldn't see about the Bible that I would hear them and I was like, that doesn't make sense to me or I don't believe that or I'm offended by that. And now all of a sudden I love these truths. And it's like the, the scales have fallen from my eyes and I can finally see God's light. That's the miracle and transformation that the grace and power of Jesus does. Okay? So... What's the setting? You have to be around Jesus' disciples who are talking about his name, okay? What's the internal condition? You have to feel deeply your need for mercy and to cry out to him and not let the shortcomings of Christians stop you from coming to Christ. And so, and what is the miracle that Jesus stops for one person and powerfully calls him to himself and then heals him by his grace? And so that leads to our final question then. What are the results? When Jesus changes a life, what is the outcome? What are the results after that? And I'll just say a few words about this. But you notice the, the last sentence of this passage in verse 52, second part of verse 52. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And the word there for the way is the Greek word hados. Um, which it can be translated road. You see it up there in verse 48. You see roadside there. That's the same word, hados. Uh, but later in the New Testament, when the gospel is spreading throughout the Mediterranean and the world, basically Christianity is described as the way, the hados. That was the message that people were inviting people into was this, this whole way of life. And so to become a Christian, the result of the healing is to enter into this way, this new path, this new way of life, a new kind of lifestyle. And it's not, so Christianity is not just a free ticket into heaven. And it's like, if you believe in this, praise God that when you believe in Christ, you're given eternal life. You do get to go to heaven. And it's, uh, and it's not even just the healing that happens. Like, great, I feel a lot better and I get to enjoy life being healed. Jesus wants to heal us so that we will become useful for his purposes and for his kingdom. And you might say, well, what is the new way of being human that is this way that Jesus is inviting us into? Well, I'll tell you, it's not just like a bunch of rules that now you have to obey. It's far more personal than that. Because probably the most important verse that explains the hados to, to us is, is John 14, 6, a famous verse where Jesus says, I am the way. And so the new lifestyle is that when we come into a new life is where Jesus, we are joined in our life to Jesus. His thinking becomes our thinking. His words become our words. His habits become our habits. His relationships become our relationships. His vision and goals become our vision and goals. All of that is changing our inner life, our relational life, our goals for our whole life become, come from him. And so to live in the way is to live life in union with Christ. 
And so when we think, how does Jesus change a life, this passage gives us a compelling picture, and it all comes from the Lord. He's the one who makes the setting. He puts around us disciples of Jesus who tell us about his name. But it is also God who prepares us internally, showing us our need for mercy, which enables us to overlook the shortcomings of Jesus' followers. But then comes the miracle, Jesus stopping for us individually, for you And for me, summoning us to himself with a powerful calling and then healing us by his grace. But he does not just heal us so that we can feel better. He heals us so that we can live life in a new way in union with him. And so it's our hope here at Christ Church that the Lord would bring many people to our community to experience just this kind of life change and that we would continue to experience that life change even as his followers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what tremendous hope that you have sent your son into the earth to seek out and to save the lost. And Lord, that is us here, those who are lost, uh, going our own way, um, hostile towards you, and yet you sought us out. And uh, Lord, you, you stopped. You he- heard our cries for mercy. And Lord, I pray that through our life together, many would hear about the name of Jesus and that you would call many of your people here in Bellingham and Whatcom County to come and experience your life-changing power and grace. So may your Holy Spirit move among us. And I pray for any who are present here who have not known this grace before. I pray that you would grant them faith. I pray that you would summon them to yourself and that you would give each of them hearts of trust to come to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.